Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Following three weeks of how-to research methods from Chris Kimball, author of several books about aspects of the Seminole Wars, we bring in an academic to give us his views of historical research methods that work for him inside the university. Our guest is Florida native Dr. John Wesley Moody III. Since 2007, Dr. Moody has worked as a professor of history at Florida State College at Jacksonville, and he discusses popular approaches to historical research. Dr. Moody prefers a narrative approach, telling a coherent and possibly unified story to understand what happened at a given place and time. Other historical approaches include applying race, class, gender, and sexual identity as the lens through which a historian should view the past. Dr. Moody discusses pros and cons of such historical approaches. Born and raised in Pensacola, Dr. Moody received a bachelor's degree from the University of Southern Mississippi, a master's degree from University of West Georgia, and a PhD from Georgia State University. Dr. Moody specializes in 19th century American history, specifically military. He is in the preliminary stages of a textbook proposal to tell Florida history from first European contact to the present. Dr. Moody is the author of four books already, including Demon of the Lost Cause, Sherman and Civil War History, Seven Myths of the Lost Cause, The Battle of Fort Sumter, and A Biography of a Civil War Marine. Wesley Moody, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much for having me. Wesley, in May, Chris Kimball joined us for three episodes, talked to us about research methods and specifically how to use them for study of the Seminole Wars. You, as a professor, are in a university setting. Tell us how it looks for research from the inside, from where you're a professor at Florida State College at Jacksonville. A lot of the things that he described, my research methods, are very similar. I mean, you just got to go out and, I mean, with really any historical subject, you got to scrounge, you got to find where things are. That doesn't change whether you're at a university. How does the subject drive the actual research or research methods you might employ? You're looking in an area, whether it's more modern or further back, or whether there's autobiographies. Knowledge of these research methods allows you to do a number of things. In your case, you're looking at the history of Florida from the first contact with Europeans. Tell us about that project. So um, what I would like, uh, and this is still in the uh, the planning uh, shopping around to uh, to publishers at the moment is a textbook of the history of Florida. The current textbook that's out there for college students, it's good. It's written by Michael Gannon. He's the, you know, the godfather of Florida history, but it's very choppy, brought in together a group of experts, and they write about their specific thing. There's not a good story in it. There's not a good narrative ties it all together, and that's what I'd like to try to write. And Florida has a rich history that needs to be told. Uh, we really have a very interesting state, uh, a very interesting history. And I teach Florida history at the college. What I always say in day one is the place that Juan Ponce de Leon in 1522 first laid eyes on Florida is the exact same spot that we launched the moon landing from. Cape Canaveral 
was the first piece of land he saw in Florida. And that connection, that you know, 500 years of history from Spaniards and wooden sailing ships to the Apollo mission, all happens in that same little acre there. No other place has that in the United States. I mean, we really have a unique and interesting history here. And I would like to write that textbook that ties all of that together. Like I said, it's a project I'm at the very, very beginning stages of. So I don't rush out to your local library as of yet, but that's where I am right now, professionally. Connect Juan Ponce de Leon and his first sighting of Florida with the moon landings being launched from Florida centuries later. It sounds like it's a clear path you could trace from those Spanish times to now, but in reality, it was a bumpy road with lots of setbacks. Whatever happened was nowhere determined in the cards ahead of time. History doesn't get us from point A to point B. And to my mind anyway, that's part of the joy of writing history, is finding out things you had no idea impacted the history that we've learned in the textbooks, and that is listed as the official accounts. Now, to bring us back onto topic, which is the Seminole Wars, Somewhere along that historical path, we do get to the Seminole Wars. What is significant about the Second Seminole War fought in the 1830s and 1840s as far as the research material available that it generated? When you're talking about you know, that antebellum period, the Second Seminole War, probably more people wrote of their experiences in that conflict than any other, perhaps you know, even the Mexican War. When it comes to research methodology, what sources are you using? I'm looking at 19th century newspapers. We live in a wonderful day where so much is being put on the computer. So much is being scanned. There's things like a 19th century newspaper database that you can Google. And most of the major newspapers in the country are scanned in a searchable database so that you can go back and you can type in a name, type in an event, and you get the headlines from Iowa to Maine to Florida. The newspapers are there discussing it. What's the biggest challenge working with actual documents? What's difficult to, to open them white gloves on and keep them open so you can photograph them. So they have these little, little white bags filled with lead pellets that you can set over in the corner and hold the page down. It's an experience, and as a historian, it's kind of undescribable that you're researching historical events, you're holding papers. Here's a document that General Winfield Scott held and wrote and thought about. You can see the thinking and the writing, what words have been scratched through and something different has been written, and it really has this sense of connection when you can touch these things. Any project you're doing, you really don't know what you're going to see till you get there. You can prepare, and there's, I know some of the, you know, the big names have graduate students they send and that type of thing. Sometimes you have to do the exploring yourself. You'll find paths you didn't know to look for until you're actually there in the woods yourself. That's what history is, and you know, there's mysteries to be solved. One of the problems with the historical field, and it's always been the case, is you'll have an historian, okay, this is my conclusion. I have come up with my conclusion. I am going to write this book, and there you go. And then you start getting into the sources, and the sources don't agree. So you can ignore those sources and write the book you planned on, or you let the sources take you where the sources take you. We've looked at ways that our listeners can research the Second Seminole War, and indeed all the Seminole Wars. But if they're in a university and they're wanting to do research on the Seminole Wars, they're going to take history classes. Wesley, in the modern-day university, 
there's several theories of how you approach historical research. Please give our listeners a summary of the tenets of these different historical theories and approaches. For instance, a traditional approach came from a Prussian historian. Who was he and what did he propose? Leopold von Ranke, the 19th century German historian, what he's writing, what he's arguing is probably what most of your listeners assumes, well, that's what history is, uh, that you go out, you look at the sources, and you come up with a narrative of this is what happened, so that you can go and you can pick up a book about the American Revolution, and you can read what happened, and you don't see the sausage being made in the back. I mean, he presents a narrative, and you can trust that this historian, he's been to the archives, he's read Washington's papers, and he's pulled it all together to tell you exactly what happened. And I think Ranke gets all this kind of credit for because he comes up with terminology for it and all of that. But I think to most people, that's just, that's what history is. Go back to Herodotus of, we call him the father of history, because when he wrote his history of the Peloponnesian War, he went and interviewed participants. He doesn't come up with his own legend and the gods did this and the gods did that. He went and talked to the fighting men and this is what happened on this day. And so as I said, that's what I think most people just assume that's what history is. And then you start getting into the 20th century and there's kind of a new idea of history. You can call it postmodernism, I think is the big term, is perhaps the beginning of this. There's Edward Say, the whole Orientalism championed this idea as well, that history is is we can't know it. It's in the past. It's just a mountain too far away for us to really ever possibly know this is what happened. And as well, not only is it impossible for us to know, but kind of this idea of not that it didn't really happen, but history is like, you know, representative art. History is different to different people. You know, it depends on who you are, how you see it. So there's no real hard line. This is what happened because it's different to different people. I know I'm probably doing a very bad job of explaining that because I'm not a believer. It's always hard to try to explain what someone else thinks, especially when it's kind of out there a little bit. So what you end up with is historians and I guess it starts in the 20s, really takes off in the 60s, really taking off now. Of You look at bits and pieces of history that you get a sense of understanding more than the hard fact history that Ranke or Herodotus would have championed. So Wesley, it's odd. One school that says, do this and we'll try to find out what actually happened as close as we can. And then another school of historians that say, no, our field can never figure out what happened. And a corollary seems to be, if we could determine what actually happened, the best way to do it is to view events through the lens of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation, and then use that to construct a theory to explain why something happened. If you're going into history and the idea is, okay, I'm going to look at an event, uh, and I've made a decision before going into it of this is what the causes are. You know, this is this is what's important. This is what's not important. If you do that before you actually get the facts on the ground, you're not accurate. You'll be missing things. I always think of you know, probably not a good way to put it. I always think of history as like a police investigation. I'm looking at an event, and if I go into it, I show up at a crime scene, and I've already decided that the butler's done it. 
I'm not going to see all the evidence, you know, and if the butler didn't do it, the wrong guy goes to jail. So you kind of got to go into an open mind and Marxist historians will really, everything's class. Yeah, everything's class, everything's economic. You have to look at everything through that lens. Well, some things you can. This is not to say that a class-based lens that we look at past events is illegitimate. There are examples throughout American history of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation as being a definitive cause or representation of some historical event. But that doesn't mean it always can be explained through that lens at all times, in all events, or that the specific event is somehow representative. Wesley, Wesley, what are some historical examples? Off the top of my head, Bacon's revolt in Virginia in 1676. I mean, that's class. That was the dominant feature of that. And you could probably even throw in race was very important in Bacon's revolt. And so you can understand that event looking at it through a, the prism of race and class. But lots of other events, you obviously can't. Lots of other events, it didn't play a role. If you try to force the square peg through the round hole, you can end up with some pretty sloppy history doing it that way. It won a Pulitzer Prize, but many historians denounced it. The 1619 Project. Would that be an example? Yes. Uh, yeah, the good old 1619 Project. 1619 Project is probably the perfect example of it. If you come up with this idea, and okay, this is what it is, I've decided before I sit down and write to make that square peg fit through the round hole, you got to change history. That you got to ignore evidence or come up with, with wholesale falsehood. 1619 Project, one of the things they argued was the American Revolution, one of the causes or one of the major causes of it was to preserve slavery in the United States because the British were on the verge of doing away with it. It. Nothing could be further from the truth. Basic history that the British Caribbean slave islands are 40 years away from ending slavery at that point. And with the 1619, to kind of bring it back to the Florida history, and we were talking about Fort Caroline, they picked the date 1619 because the idea is that's when first African slaves arrived in Virginia. And they're saying that's the beginning of American history was you know, when those slaves arrived. Well, there are already African slaves in Florida. The French at Fort Caroline had African slaves they'd brought over. And they'd actually had a minor revolt. So in Florida, we've already had a slave revolt a good 40 years before 1619 rolled around. No, my date's right here. Yeah, about 60 years earlier. So combined with ahistorical views of the past, there's also the iconoclasm. If what a statue represents is out of date, the statue may come down. If what a statue, any statue, represents is no longer in public fashion, then the statue may come down, and possibly violently, as we saw in the summer of 2020. How do historians address iconoclasm? That's a complicated question. A, the tearing down of statues, probably like most historians, I hate to say it, and the way I look at it is this is our history, good or bad. You lose an understanding when you take those statues down. At the same time, I'm not of a belief once a statue goes up. Some of us prefer that if statues come down, it's done through an organized fashion with citizen input and not just torn down by a mob. There are circumstances in history where we cheer the tearing down of a statue, a statue that symbolizes a tyranny, one where the rule of law is not practiced. In such case, it's a symbol of tearing down that regime. However, in America, where the rule of law is firmly established, there should be other means to removing statues than mob violence. 
having this conversation with somebody earlier, and I was telling you, some of the happiest moments in my life, looking back 2003, watching the news uh, and watching one of those big uh, tow trucks the Army has for pulling tanks out of ditches, watching that thing pull down this giant statue, Saddam Hussein. That was a great moment. That was a thing pulled up with all its rebarb showing. I remember watching in 91, you know, the Russian people pulling down the statues of Lenin, of Stalin, of, of Beria, of the secret police. And that was a wonderful moment. If I turned on the TV tonight and the Chinese people were pulling down statues of Chairman Mao, how wonderful would that be? Not that I'm comparing Robert E. Lee to Chairman Mao or Beria, but I'm not of this school that once it goes up, you can't bring them down. But at the same time, we're a nation of laws. There's a way to do it. And down here in St. Augustine, they had a Confederate memorial. It actually, it turned out to be a grave, and they had to scramble once they pulled the statue up and realized there was a body underneath. There in St. Augustine, there in the in the square, you had a the Confederate statue, the Confederate memorial there. And they also had memorials to civil rights leaders. And they had kind of a neat thing where they have Andrew Young's steps he took there in St. John's County marked out on the path. And the fact that you can go there and you can see that, and it's in the shadow of a Confederate statue, kind of makes what he did a little more puts it into context, you can kind of see. And once you remove the cannon, once you remove the statue, it's just any corner. I think some of that civil rights history is lost when you tear that statue down. On this topic, the Council on America's Military Past, Camp was one of the few, if not the only, historic preservation organization in the light of the 2020 riots to come out against the riots and the iconoclasm that followed. This is much to Camp's credit that it all but stood alone to uphold its mission and its charter, which is historic preservation. Some prominent historical preservation groups have dismissed concerns about the iconoclasm, reducing it to what the Society of Architectural Engineers dubbed, people put these statues up and people can take them down, as if that simplification settles it. Camp, on the other hand, said, while there's concerns, we need to follow the rule of law and we need to stick to our mission of historic preservation. By removing uncomfortable portions of our history, we take away the agency of those who study history to find out a more complete picture. You experienced this firsthand. How did that pan out, Dr. Moody? And I had a student, gosh, this was a number of years ago. For your listeners that are from the Jacksonville area, the big controversy around here for a while was we had a Nathan Bedford Forest High School. Forrest, of course, founder of the Klan and all of that. This black student came to me, and I used to have my students had to read a biography, go out and find a biography of some historical figure and write a book review. And so this black student comes to me, and he says he's got this biography of Forrest. He says, I know nothing about Nathan Bedford Forrest. I went to Nathan Bedford Forrest High School for four years. I played on the football team. I know nothing about him. I'm going to read this book. And I said, all right, thumbs up. Go for it. Come talk to me when you're done. I got some questions I want to ask you. So he reads the book. He comes back. He's like, wow, that, that was an eye-opener. I had no idea. And so I said, so knowing what you know now, do you think they ought to change the name of the school? And they've, they've since changed the name of the school. And he said no. He said not only should they not change the name, they should do more to tell students who this guy was. And his rationale was that as a black student, if he'd realized who Mason Bedford Forrest was and that he was going to Forrest High School, that would have been motivation for him. He said, I would have been a better student 
He said, I would have been a straight A student as a way to a middle finger uh, to Nathan Bedford Forrest. Here I am at your school, black man doing extremely well. And so I think that's something to keep in mind when they're talking about name changing and tearing down statues is it should be presented sometimes as a thing to motivate people. I'll show this guy, right? Yeah, when you're a uh, nation of laws, uh, and if you move away from that, there's all kinds of dangers. Yeah, I, I do wonder if some of these organizations moving forward, and we're going to hire a director of preservation. Now, will the new interview question be, so are you for historical preservation? Yeah. Because if you've hired a director of historical preservation that's really not on board with historical preservation, you've probably made a mistake there. Maybe someday we'll ask that question in uh, academics. What are your thoughts on Camp's statement against iconoclasm and for historic preservation? If Camp, I wasn't editing the heliogram when they came out with their statement, but I think if Camp had come out with anything but a hardline preservationist statement, they'd probably lost all their members. I was going to say a lot of the stuff in the state that could be torn down has been rebuilt anyway, so they could <laughs> rebuild Fort Christmas if they had to. What is the academic institution where you presently work? We're a two-year school. We're not exactly University of Florida or University of Miami as of yet. Some of our listeners may be a little confused that you teach at Florida State College. Please inform our listeners a little background of the school where you teach. And what's the impetus behind the way the school is structured? So when I was hired, I came down to Florida in 2007, and I was hired by Florida Community College at Jacksonville. And very large school, we had about 20,000 students, four campuses around the Jacksonville area. And about three or four years later, it transitioned, and really every community or junior college transitioned at the same time. Uh, there are no community colleges, junior colleges in Florida anymore. And what happened is almost all of these schools began offering a few four-year degrees. Uh, ours was, we have one in nursing, uh, we have one in education, I think there's one in logistics now, and because we offer that four-year degree, we're no longer just a community college uh, or just a junior college. So we changed our name, we dropped the community, we became Florida State College at Jacksonville, I know Pensacola Junior College became Pensacola State College. So all the old junior community colleges became state colleges. Now, we still do the same mission. Uh, we still offer the AA two-year degree. So everything we did before, all the mission of the old community college, we still do. But we now do more as well. Same product, which is a slightly different name. Like I said, we're still offering the two-year degrees. Uh, we're still doing all of the the programs we used to do. And the, the four-year degrees, and we've we struck a deal with, with the universities in our area. Uh, we don't offer degrees in direct competition with our four-year schools. So the degrees we offer are, well, like nursing. University of North Florida, which is just across the street from my campus, they can't graduate enough nursing students to meet local demand. So we offer a nursing degree as well. There's no competition there. There's no like, you know, you know everybody's offering a PhD in history and we're producing a glut in, in those degrees. We're, they've been very specific about it to make sure that we're offering degrees where there's just a need, uh, where there's a, a serious demand for those, those degrees, those students. Yeah, it's still just a two-year degree program. Your traditional, what you think of with the bachelor's degree program, your histories, your psychologies, your literature, we're not offering any of those kind of degrees. 
you just get your AA degree and we get you ready to go off to UF or UNF or any of the other fine schools in the state of Florida. One of the things our listeners would want to know about is the tuition. How does the tuition compare with this school and with traditional four-year schools in the state of Florida? We're bargain. You're looking at, uh, I think, a, and I, I might be off a little bit. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, uh, but a full full load for a semester you're looking between three and four thousand dollars. I think uh, UF is probably over ten at this point for a semester. It's a cheap education. Uh, I mean, it doesn't like I said, doesn't even compare it to the other. And I always tell my students when they come in, I teach a you know a U.S. history one class. Thirty students uh, is the most I'll ever have in classroom at the same time. And I tell them, you know, if you went down to the University of Florida, you could have the same class. You could pay five times as much, and you're one of a hundred students in the class. And the professor just doesn't have time for you. I mean, he's got too much else going on and too many students. He's got you know 500 students a semester. Here, small class size, professors there to help. Uh, you know, we've got the time, the numbers that. You know, you can give the students a one-on-one if they need it. So definitely a great deal. It won't sound like an advertisement, but for the price, and I'd argue a better education coming to one of Florida's, like I said, pretty much every large city's got what you used to call a community college. Now we're calling a state college. You do your two years at a great price, and then you can finish off with your degree at a UF or UNF or West Florida. Wesley, there's another wrinkle to this. While you're getting a full professor to teach you the basic core courses at your college, if you're at one of the four-year institutions and it's a basic meat and potatoes class, that full professor may not be available for junior level courses. And so you're paying tuition and fees for a four-year university with the prestige of having full professors available to teach it. And then you get inexperienced grad students in a 100 or greater student class. Interaction's gonna be less, and the knowledge of the grad student who's teaching the class will be less. In those respects, it really is a bargain going where your school is. More interaction. A lot of your introductory courses, you know, the graduate students teach it. So if you take US-1 at the University of Florida, uh, there's a very good chance that it's a graduate student. And, and nothing against graduate students, but they are new. They've got their own problems going on, that type of thing. I'm, I'm a PhD. I've been teaching for going on 20 years now at this point. I think you're getting a much better deal having me in your intro class than a graduate student that learned it yesterday and is rushing around trying to get their dissertation written and worry about their own classes and, and all of that. Wesley, let's get to the nitty-gritty then. You're teaching classes. What are you teaching at the school? So I teach, well, I offer a lot of history courses. Ones I teach, I teach the U.S. history. Uh, we break that into two sections. is U.S. history from the beginning to 1865, the end of the American Civil War. And then a second course, U.S. history two, that is from 1865 to modern times, which every semester there's more material. Uh, every semester is a little harder to teach. What I would really like to see happen is... At some point, we need to break that course into thirds. And you have U.S. history from the beginning to 1865, and then you have a course that's U.S. history 1865 to maybe 1945, maybe call World War II the end, and then have a course that's just post-World War II. A lot easier said than done. No one's called me and asked how we should divide up these courses, but it is something that at some point down the road, they're going to have to reevaluate how they break up the U.S. history section. And teach a world history course that is modern history, 1500 to current times. 
It is a lot of stuff they should have learned in um, in high school. Can't argue with that. The students that are coming to me that have no historical knowledge, I mean, don't know who George Washington is. I mean, just it's, I'm not in the high schools. I can't tell you what's going on there. Even with that, coming in with students that you're talking about a clean slate, I give them college. I teach them more than what they should have gotten in high school. And of course, you got it in high school, you know, you're a step ahead. If you didn't, you know, I guess sometimes it can be a little bit like uh, drinking out of a fire hose, but they're getting the college level material. We're not, okay, well, you didn't learn this now, so we're going to give you high school at this point. Might be the case that the students that are getting it in high school are going elsewhere. I mean, they're going straight to U.S., they're going straight to four-year colleges. And And because of the nature of your school, you also have non-traditional students in some respects, these students are more motivated or more highly motivated than the traditional students coming straight out of high school. How is that? We have a lot of students that is exactly who they are. They're older. They're coming back to college. They didn't take any of it seriously the first time through. And now here we are with their second chance. And those can be by far the best students because they understand, yeah, I really, I really should have been paying a little more attention the first time through. So you're teaching history, and you're teaching Florida history, and there's a little bit of Florida history up there in the Jacksonville area. That may bring it home a little bit more to students. I'm up here in Jacksonville, and of course, as you probably know, first settlement, uh, the first French settlement in North America happened here in Jacksonville, Fort Caroline. And of course, the Spanish came in, and you know, they, they put an end to that fast enough. Well, in the city of Jacksonville, and the St. Augustine area as well, there is stuff everywhere named after the people, the event, We've got Fort Caroline National Park, there's a Fort Caroline Highway. There are high schools named after the top players. You know, there's Repo High School. Down in St. Augustine, there's everything is named after Pedro Menendez. I have students that just, that's all news to them, uh, the events of, of Fort Caroline. Students, they went to Rebo High School. They didn't know who the guy was, never heard of him. So, I mean, here you're in an area, you're walking on the ground where it happened. You know, the names are everywhere, and the curiosity has never been there before of where did this name come from. That always surprises me a little bit, even after many years of teaching. This has been a fruitful discussion, and now we're out of time. Dr. Wesley Moody, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Oh, I think it's been a pleasure, and I appreciate you letting me be on. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.